This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. If you're listening to this episode, then I'd guess that you're pretty into history. And if you're after more fascinating stories from the past on everything from medieval peasants to World War II pilots, then why not check out the History Extra podcast? Made by the team behind BBC History magazine, History Extra brings you conversations with the world's leading historians. Subscribe for fresh takes on history's most famous figures and compelling deep dives into lesser-known events. Just search for History Extra to listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Carolyn Quinn. Welcome to the Business Blueprint from the UK's Department for Business and Trade, the bite-sized podcast designed to help you scale and strengthen your organisation. In this episode, we're joined by Michael Marchinik, the founder and CEO of Adtonos. That's a digital audio advertising business which started life in London. So, Michael, why London? Why the UK? London is a capital for venture capital, and there's lots of innovation. The English language is extremely important if you want to scale up your business to international size. If you want to operate globally, you have a great talent pool here and you can find people experienced in you know, different areas. Diversity of the culture and people that live here, you can really profit from that. Thank you very much, Michael. Join us in part two at the end of your podcast. And to find out more, search Invest in Great. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. In 1956, Oxford University awarded an honorary degree to the former US President Harry S. Truman for his role in ending the Second World War. One philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe, objected strongly. She argued that although dropping nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki may have ended the fighting, it amounted to the murder of tens of thousands of innocent civilians. It was therefore an irredeemable, immoral act, and there was something fundamentally wrong with a moral philosophy that didn't see that. This was the starting point for a body work that changed the terms in which philosophers discussed moral and ethical questions in the second half of the 20th century. Anscombe was also instrumental in making action, and the question of what it means to intend to do something, a leading area of philosophical work. With me to discuss Elizabeth Anscombe and Rachel Wiseman, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Liverpool, Constantine Sandis, Visiting Professor of Philosophy at the University of Hertfordshire, and Director of Lex Academic, and Roger Teichman, Lecturer in Philosophy at St Hilda's College, University of Oxford. Roger, can you tell us about Anscombe's early life, family background and education? Yes, sure. So Anscombe was uh, Elizabeth Anscombe or Gertrude Elizabeth Margaret Anscombe uh, in full. Her father was Alan Wells Anscombe. He was a soldier. Her mother, Gertrude Elizabeth Nay Thomas, was, was a teacher. Elizabeth was born uh, in 1919 in Limerick in Ireland because her father was posted there. But the posting didn't last very long and the family moved back to England when Elizabeth was still an infant. Um, she had two brothers, uh, 
uh, who, one of whom she was very fond of, but who died actually in action in the Second World War. The other became an Anglican vicar. So one question that, of course, you want to ask about any philosopher is how they first got the bug, how they first got bitten. Anscombe got bitten in the following way. She did a lot of independent reading as a teenager, and in particular read books about uh, religion and theology, and two books in particular by Jesuits, a 19th century Jesuit called Bernard Burder and the famous uh, Martin Darcy, a 20th century Jesuit. She read these books and found herself disagreeing with certain of the arguments and claims made in them without realising that the topics of these disagreements were in fact philosophical. Um, She hadn't come across philosophy, she just wanted to argue with the author, argue with the text, and only later realised, oh, those were philosophical issues. So, for example, a proof for the existence of God given in one of the books struck her, she was 14 or something, struck her as a failure, a flawed proof, and instead of just sighing, throwing the book in the corner or turning the page, she felt impelled to go off and try and do a better version, to plug the holes in the argument, and she later recalled several attempts, unsuccessful attempts, to make this argument work. But that was, according to her, how she first got the philosophical bug. So, against her parents' wishes, she converted to Catholicism, but she went against their wishes, and he influenced the rest of her career being a Catholic. That's right. So, reading those books in her teens, as well as bringing her to philosophy, you might say, uh, took her away from her parents' Anglican faith and towards Rome. And they were pretty alarmed by this. They even got a local vicar around to try and dissuade their daughter from this perilous path. But she didn't budge. She didn't budge, no. She sent the, the vicar away with a flea in his ear, more or less, uh, on, the, on the topic of transubstantiation. <laughs> Seemed to have been a very determined young girl. Yes, this is a, a, it's an early instance of, of a toughness of character, which is completely characteristic of her. Thank you. Constantine Sanders. In 1942, Anscombe went to Cambridge to study under the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Who was he, and what was she working on when she encountered him? It was quite a strange time in, in Wittgenstein's life, though there have been many strange times in his life, I suppose. She'd already read his first book, The Tractatus, the only one published in his lifetime, and then went to study with him. But this was during war, and Wittgenstein sort of disapproved of people just carrying on with philosophy during wartime. So he was at a guy's hospital, working as a porter, kind of incognito at that time, but still giving philosophy lectures, I think, every other weekend in Cambridge, and he was, at that point, doing philosophy of mathematics in particular. His first work had really been about logic and how mind and world relate and was quite systematic in some ways, but he was moving away from that, moving away from the the very book that had inspired Anscombe, and in 42 he was doing this philosophy of mathematics by 44 when he's back at Cambridge delivering lectures he's really doing philosophical psychology which came to influence Anscombe quite a lot in fact she translated both his works on maths and philosophical psychology down the line but this is the kind of mid-late period in Wittgenstein's life where he's moved away from the ideas of the Tractatus which are very formal and quite strict and he's interested in how ordinary ways of speaking, how concepts are related to our practices and everyday life. And this is something that the context in which a word has meaning is very important to Anscombe's own philosophy. His reputation was enormous. What effect did he have personally and philosophically on Anscombe? Um, His reputation was huge. I mean, personally, they became very good friends. All you need to know is she's 
buried next to him and was there on his final day when he died. There are times, I think, when she went to see him when she was having a sort of personal crisis and went and stayed with him for a few days and we don't know exactly what happened but that's how important he was to her personally there are places where she sort of says you know she was so close to him and yet didn't really fully understand him so he was a kind of enigma to her in some ways I think. What did she take from him philosophically? Philosophically her two huge influences are, are Wittgenstein on the one hand and Thomas Aquinas on the other. Sorry the Middle Ages <laughs> Saint uh, yes. scholar who, as it were, transferred Aristotle into Christianity. That's right, and Aristotle is also a very important figure for, for Anscombe. She's her own philosopher, she's not just taking views from these people, but Wittgenstein certainly influenced, I, I guess, a number of ways. One, in terms of topic, her interest in philosophical psychology, her interest in intention and philosophy of action comes from things in the philosophical investigations which she translated and is was published posthumously but also what I was speaking about before in relation to the life that concepts have and how they relate to our practices and um, the ordinary use of words as opposed to kind of philosophical uses is very important so when she looks at intention for example she is doing a kind of conceptual analysis but she's interested in looking at what it means to say someone did something intentionally. And even stylistically, if you look at the way in intention her, her um, one of her main books is which written... Which will be coming to. Which will be coming to. Um, um, there are similarities there with Wittgenstein. We might talk about those in a moment. Yes. He taught her a lot. Did she teach him anything? I'm sure she taught him a lot. He clearly was particularly fond of her... There's evidence to suggest Wittgenstein was not that keen on female philosophers, but he affectionately referred to Anscombe as old man or old boy or, some, or something like that. And, and sometimes when, when the women had left the room and Anscombe was still there, he'd say, it's just us men now or something like that. So it's maybe showing not the best side of Wittgenstein, but it also shows his, his affection for Anscombe. Wittgenstein doesn't tolerate fools, so if she's there, he's learning a lot from her. Thank you. Rachel Wiseman, beyond Wittgenstein's circle, moral philosophy in the 1940s was dominated by the non-cognitivism under the influence of A.J. Eyre. What was non-cognitivism? Just before the war, so 1936, just before Ranscombe arrived as a student at Oxford University, A.J. Eyre published a book called Language, Truth and Logic, and in it, he sort of set out a manifesto. He was only a young man at the time, a manifesto to sort of destroy philosophy. That was what he wanted to do, and particularly uh, destroy metaphysics. And it caused a real uh, ruckus around uh, Oxford and the, the stories of some of the older dons sort of throwing it out of the window, and, and people described it as, as a bombshell. In that book, he argues that only statements of fact have sense. So any s sentence that you might utter, if it can't be measured or empirically tested by a scientist, then it doesn't strictly mean anything. Um, now, he wanted to put that forward because he wanted to destroy metaphysics. So he wanted to say, you know, all this 
guff about whether or not God exists or what what is truth and all. You know, this is just nonsense. So, you know, all there is is questions like, what is the boiling point of water? And, you know, scientists can find that out for us. So he had this view that the task of philosophy was not to discover the fundamental structure of the universe or, you know, but was just to clarify language in a way that would allow the scientists to get to work and do their job. How successful was he? <laughs> Not very, because we're all still here, I suppose. <laughs> but it was a really, you know, it was a really powerful manifesto. And one of the chapters in that book is about ethics, because what happens in the course of the, him kind of taking weed killer, if you like, to philosophy, is he the weed killer spreads to moral utterances as well because it turns out if I say, you know, murder is wrong or you ought not to tell lies, well, we can't give that to a scientist as an empirical hypothesis. So that turns out also to be not a statement of fact. And so this leaves a question um, about <coughs> how we should understand value statements um, so a non-cognitivist, so that's where we started, is somebody who thinks that when I make a moral utterance or moral sentences aren't statements of fact, they're not verifiable, they're not uh, truth, they don't have a truth value because they don't say anything about how the world is. Now, once you've made that negative point that they're not statements of fact, the question is then, well, what are they? And AJR says, well, really, they're expressions of emotion. So if I say murder is wrong, what I'm really saying is, you know, boo to murdering. <laughs> so I'm not saying something true or false, I'm just saying boo. Um, and of course this means that the only sort of real task for moral philosophy is a kind of linguistic task, the task of, you know, wondering about what the sort of structure, if you like, of a moral utterance is. And there's nothing to say about the substantive question for moral philosophers of what good or bad or, or anything like that really is. At the time the men were going to war and a lot of the philosophers in Oxford, Cambridge and many other universities were in the intelligence services and so on, which in a sense left the field open to women philosophers. And she was surrounded by Iris Murdoch, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley at Oxford at the same time. Did they form a group that helped each other or did it, was it just happenstance that they were all there at the same time? Mary Midgley talks in her memoir about this time, about the way in which the absence of the men and the context of the war changed the character of philosophy at Oxford. So she says that, you know, before the war, the, the philosophy was characterised by a lot of clever young men competing at winning arguments. Um, and she says what happened in the wartime classes was that we all sort of turned our, as she puts it, turned our attention onto this deeply puzzling world. So she talks about a shift in attention and also a context in which maybe different voices and particularly women's voices could get heard. Now, Anscombe and those are the, the other three women you mentioned got to know each other at this time. And it was really, I think, after the war when the men came back and non-cognitivism sort of picked up again that the four of them sort of clubbed together and Philippa Foote, you know, in Philippa Foote's living room and said, this isn't, this is no good. And I think that their kind of this is no good had two aspects to it. So one was that because 
for non-cognitivists like like Air and, and RM Hare, all there is to do in moral philosophy is talk about the meaning of moral terms. There's no actual content to it. It meant that there was no idea that moral philosophy could pursue questions about what was good for human beings, about you know substantive truths, about what flourishing would be for us, about virtues, and, and these questions were all off the table. And I think that, second of all, the context of, of the war, and in particular Philippa Foot here talks about the context of the Holocaust, and we'll talk in a minute about the context of Hiroshima, meant that it just seemed to the, the four of them that this was absurd, that moral philosophy at this crucial moment had sort of deserted the field and that there was no way of saying, you know, the, the Nazis were wrong or this was bad, um, which is what they wanted to say, of course. Thank you very much. Roger, in 1956, Anscombe argued against Oxford awarding an honorary degree to Harry S. Truman. What was her argument? Yes, Harry Truman, as we know, dropped those two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, as you said at the beginning, Anscombe's view of him was that he was a mass murderer and thought it was inappropriate, let's put it that way, for him to be offered a, an honorary degree. A little, she produced a little pamphlet, which is now which was called Mr. Truman's Degree, to explain her thoughts. And the thoughts were really um, uh, to be ones which she elaborated more in both in uh, the famous book Intention, but also more importantly in modern moral philosophy. Essentially, the justification for dropping the bonds uh, was that in doing so, more lives were saved by bringing the war to a, a hastier end. That, for Ansgar, would, would be to not distinguish properly between people that you kill and people that die as a result of things that you do. And that's that's the distinction which is familiar even in obvious legal situations. Let's say a gunman is on, is on the rampage somewhere. I have a gun. Uh, I fail to shoot the gunman. Maybe I, I don't do well. Maybe I should have. But one thing I'm not accusable of is murdering those people that die. The people that died were killed by the gunman. Similarly, if I build a motorway knowing that there are going to be a lot of deaths due to uh, drivers, those can't be put on my account. And she'd, she would say to those defending Truman, if you kill a lot of people, you killed a lot of people. And if they're innocents, then you've murdered them. If you don't do something such that killing will go on, you're not a, a murderer. On the contrary, you're doing the right thing in avoiding murder. So really, it's an instance of two very different approaches to moral questions, which... Um, she was to make explicit in modern moral, the article Modern Moral Philosophy. And whereas the sort of position she was to label consequentialist would say, ask yourself what effects would ensue from your doing this or not doing that. She would say, no, the older and better principle of life is do no evil. And that's a completely different question. It's a very simple question in yeah. a way, and I think the listeners would be as interested as I was. That she stood up, mm. and this is a president from version of the United States, yeah. and these were two great events, and, and everybody thought, oh, well, that helps to end the war. And she said, but it was mass murder, and we should not stand for that. Mm. So, so what is her argument? Um, she goes to quite great lengths to say that she's not a pacifist. This is not a pacifist argument. It's coming from Aquinas, who we spoke about earlier, um, who had this doctrine of double effect. And what this means is that when, when I act, my actions can have consequences that I intend and consequences that I foresee but do not intend, as in the motorway example, where I might foresee that people will have car crashes, 
but I'm not building the mo motorway in order for people to die in car crashes. By contrast, Truman is bombing in order to kill those people. So they're used as a means to ending the war and their deaths are intended. They're not merely foreseen. And she gives the example of it's not like he's bombing some military buildings or government buildings and he foresees that there may be some civilians around. He intends to kill the civilians and that makes it murder. Um, but she's not a pacifist. It's, f it's fine for there to, you know, war is never a good thing, she says, but if you're not the aggressor, you might have to enter it. What's your view on this, Rachel? Yeah, I think you're right, Robin, that it's such a striking scene, the idea of this young woman standing up before all these dons and calling the president a mass murderer. I mean, it's kind of astonishing when you, you imagine what it must have been like, and I think it shows something really important about her as a person and the kind of cu the courage of her um but Did many people take notice no nobody takes notice no, nobody took notice although actually i say that but afterwards she received many letters including from people who had been in hiroshima you know who'd, who'd witnessed the bomb saying thank you you know thank you for saying for saying this thing but but what you hear in that pamphlet is this sense of despair that modern philosophers and the broader public have somehow lost sight of what of the dreadful sin of murder because they're fixated on thinking about bringing about good consequences and yeah. she thinks that's a sign of, of sort of deep corruption yeah i'm just just on the question of how much attention was paid to all this it's I didn't realise until relatively recently how much coverage this event got. Um, not just in the newspapers of, of this country, the, the Guardian, the Times, the Oxford Mail, of course, but but in American newspapers, it was it was you could say a scandal, and it was it was um, extraordinarily attended to that the a don and a woman don was trying to prevent uh, the, the president of the United States from getting an honorary degree. Um, so the ripples were certainly felt. And he was even asked about it, and he said. Given the facts again, I'd do it again. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever wondered what hidden history hotspots lie within your favourite tourist destinations? Hi, I'm Paul Bloomfield, journalist, travel writer and history fan. In our brand new History Extra series, I'll be exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. We'll delve into each city's origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflict, culture, wealth and weakness. We'll also visit places that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Constantly, can I ask you, in 1957, she published her book, Intention, which is basically, as I understand it, uh, <laughs> and it's about philosophy, the philosophy of action. Can you uh, tell us what that is and why it was important? If you look at the history of philosophy, philosophers have always been interested in, in action in, in a number of ways. For example, free will is something most people know something about do we have free will are our actions determined 
when are we responsible for inaction? So responsibility in sort of moral and legal philosophy. And in philosophy of mind, you know, think of Descartes, mind causes body. So what is the cause of action? Is What is the relation between mind and body? So action has featured in the history of philosophy, but it was always either part of moral philosophy or part of the philosophy of mind. Whereas after Anscombe, it becomes a philosophical field in its own right, even though the reason sh- she has for doing philosophy of action is that she thinks we can't do moral philosophy until we know what what is an action, how is an action related to desire, how is an action related to intention, which is the name of the book, what is it to act intentionally versus voluntarily, unintentionally, what is it to do something by mistake rather than accident. So these are the kind of questions that philosophers of action are interested in, as opposed, uh, in addition to just free will and so on. Rachel, can you tell listeners how she went about investigating the idea of intention? Yeah, it's such a wonderful book and I would recommend anybody listening to go and get it. It's very, very thin, which is deceptive because it makes you think, oh, I could read this very quickly. So at the beginning of the book, she says, look, there's three kinds of cases in which we might speak about intention. So we might, uh, if somebody says, oh, I'm going for a pint, then we could say that's an expression of intention for the future. Um, If somebody is walking along, we might say that's an intentional action. And if somebody does something surprising, um, like kicks me under the table, I might ask what was the intention with which they did that. So we've got three uses that look very different there, because one's about the future, one's about now, and one's about the past. And Anscombe asks, well, what, what connects these three different uses? Now, traditionally, you might think, or most philosophers might think, well, there must be some fact or some property or some feature of the the person in the situation that makes that that we're picking out with the word intention you know a state of mind or a character or something like that and what's so amazing about Anscombe is she doesn't do that at all instead she does what Wittgenstein does and she says what we're interested in when we're interested in the the character of a concept and when we're interested in what the word intention means if you like is its use and what we're interested in is the kind of pattern of use that all of those three cases share and so I mean one example I was thinking about as a kind of parallel is suppose you wanted to know about what chess was you know you could watch two people playing chess and you could write down everything they did and every thought they had and every movement they made and you wouldn't know anything about chess at all because what you'd want to know is the rules and you'd want to know, the, which would give you a sense of the pattern, like why are they moving things that way? Why are certain moves prohibited and certain moves are allowed? And you might want to know about the broader context that playing chess plays in human life. So you might want to think about how it relates to other games and warfare and wrestling or whatever. So Anscombe, instead of sort of looking at features or properties of people and states of mind when she's investigating intention, wants to look for the pattern in human life that is characteristic of the appearance of this concept. And then she has the most incredible idea, which every time I think about it blows my mind. She thinks, okay, I can find out that pattern. I can reveal that pattern by looking at the way in which we use the question, why? So if I say, Melvin, why are you reaching for that cup? And you say, I'm thirsty. Okay, this is an example of an answer 
that shows me that you were doing it intentionally. If you say, oh, I didn't even know I was reaching for the cup. I was, you know, I must have been, you know, I don't know, I was dreaming or it was an accident or something. Then I know it wasn't intentional. So she has this amazing idea that if I, if she can give an account of or a description of when we use the question why and the kind of answers to that question that show that what the person is doing is intentional under the description, that's going to reveal this amazing pattern. And so that's what she does in the book. And it's incredibly complicated, but it's sort of incredibly elegant as well, I think. You want to come in? The book does so many different things. The why question is central, but it leads off into a whole lot of different directions because this this is a topic which covers mind and body, ethics, our knowledge of the future, consider you know i know that i'm going to be in the in the pub this evening how not in the same way that i know that constantine's going to be in the pub he, why not I, well because he told me so or, and i know he's a pub goer but in my own case i've decided to or i just you say what are you going to do this evening i think of it and say i'll be in the pub that's not a prediction in the same sense in which i might say i'll get the plague if if it's going around that's a prediction about me but a, I'm not predicting of myself as it were. I don't need to observe myself on the basis of my observations, say, you know what, I think I'm probably going to, this body's probably going to walk over there into that thing which is a pub. It's rather a declaration. She's, like Wittgenstein, makes comparisons and a useful comparison for a declaration of intention, like I'm going to the shop, is an instruction. So, for example, I could say to someone else, go to the shop, get the following items. Uh, and that's, that's not a prediction, it's uh, an instruction. And she has a nice example, which is known as the shopping example, where uh, a list I give my partner, uh, to, you know, with eggs, butter, cereal, you know, fish. They go off, they come back, the basket that they bring back hasn't got the fish on it. She makes this a point, well, where's the error? Is the error in what I said in the list, or is it somehow in what the person did? Well, obviously, the, the mismatch between what's in the basket and my list is the fault of the of the basket holder is the fault of the person who is meant to be carrying out the order contrast that with a detective who follows a shopper into a shop same list they've got a list of items because they're watching what the person buys if there's a mismatch between the detective's list and what's in the in the uh, basket that's the detective's fault because the detective's list is meant to match the world if you like it's meant to uh, reflect what was done where does that take us it shows that when I either express a decision, I'm going to go to the shop and I'm going to get X, Y, and Z, or analogously, if I tell someone to do those things, that the function of that list, that instruction, that expression of intention, isn't to report something about what's going to happen, though it's in the future tense. It's, it's as it were, meant to make it happen. Is that, of, is that to do with acting under a description? That everything connects. That's another important topic that she she brings in. She has a nice example uh, of pumping a man pumping a pump. What's he doing? Well, he's pumping a pump, but he's also doing a, a bunch of other things. He's making his arm go up and down. He's pushing water through a pipe. He's replenishing the water tank in the house on the hill. Uh, one action with many descriptions. And some of those descriptions are not relevant to the person's intention. Like making a squeaking noise. Perhaps he didn't even know he was doing that. But perhaps he did, but it's not the reason he's doing it. So the description under which an action is always not intentional is a, a very important observation because you can't just say, was that action intentional? This is one of Anscombe's main points because it might be intentional under one description and unintentional under another. Thank you. Constantine, intention is a notoriously difficult book. Why is it so difficult? The language isn't technical. Unlike a lot of contemporary philosophy, 
She uses quite ordinary terms. However, unlike most philosophical works, it doesn't have things like an introduction, a conclusion, chapters, here's what I will do next, I will now argue for this, because... So it doesn't have that kind of narrating, guiding thread that tells you, here's how it's going to go, I'm now going to do this, I've shown this, here's a little recap. She thinks, as Wittgenstein did, that really the reader needs to do the thinking, the reader needs to do the hard work, and if the reader can't connect these things there, I mean, she would often use the word, including of Truman in the pamphlet, stupid, and she says that of many of people who we think of as the great philosophers from history of ideas and so on. So it's it's quite tough in in that way. She's not willing to to guide the the reader. Why not, do you think? I was just thinking about Melvin saying to, to Roger, where is this taking us? And I think that that is how one feels reading Intention. And it connects, I think, with this idea that you think for an account of intention or intentional action, you want to be told about some property or some state of mind and you want an account of that and how it brings about these actions and you want a theory of action. And she's not giving you that. She's sort of describing these very mundane situations in which people are doing their shopping and pumping some water. And so it's really hard to resist to not be thinking the whole time, well, where is this going? And where it's going, I think, is... You end up with a really careful description of this order that is there whenever actions are done with intentions of the kind that Roger was talking about with the pumper. So this idea that whenever somebody's acting intentionally, there's going to be a set of descriptions of what they're doing that can be linked together by the phrase in order to, in order to. So I'm moving my arm in order to operate the pump, in order to replenish the water supply, in order to... And this sort of linking of nested descriptions, which link, if you like, a bodily movement to something I'm aimed at, that's what she's aiming to describe. And she thinks that if she can describe that formal order, that's all we need to know what intention is. You've been asking us... But why does this why does this matter? What's the point of this? Where is it going? And yeah. and it's important precisely because of the Truman case. It's important because when people were defending Truman, they were saying things like, He didn't bomb anything, he just signed a piece of paper. And she wants to say that in signing a piece of paper, he is ordering the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, and that's an action redescription. And it's one, and he knows he's doing that. He's not being fooled. It's not like someone who says, sign here, and then they say, got you, <laughs> look what you've just ordered. Uh, he's not being tricked. He's doing it in and the description under which um, the action is intentional under that description of ordering the bombing. And so this stuff, it's not just pure theory for her. It's it's really important to the question of who is and who isn't a murderer, for example. But do we get the word consequentialism out of this? Her word that did she invent that word? And if so, yeah, she did invent that word. Um, so you don't get the word consequentialism in intention. So the word consequentialism, as Roger says, is in modern moral philosophy. And it occurs once before in an earlier place, actually, but that's its first famous occurrence. Yeah. yeah. Consequentialism nowadays is a view that the right action is whichever action brings about the best consequences. So if you're trying to decide whether to go to the pub or walk your dog, then you think, well, which one will bring about the best consequences? And then you do, you should do that one. So that's 
uh, consequentialism now. But I think when Anscombe coins the phrase, she means something that does link much more closely to what we've just been talking about. She means the view that um, one is equally responsible for all the consequences of what one does, regardless of whether or not you intend them or merely foresee them. And so what that ordering of descriptions that we've just been talking about in intention does is it allows you to pick out which descriptions of what's going to happen as a result of what you do are the ones that you intend and so are therefore the ones for which you're responsible and which are, if you like, things that you foresee but they're not in that order of <coughs> intentional action. So it's a way of showing how it is that some future consequences are relevant to the question of the character of your act and some aren't. Constantine, she talks about Aristotle. Why does she bring Aristotle into her equations? A big thing for her was she was a Roman Catholic, but many people she both people she respected philosophically and people maybe who she didn't respect as much were more secular than her in, in various ways and to varying degrees. And she was interested in how secular and religious people could have moral discussions. Relating to the stuff about context and Wittgenstein, she thinks that a lot of contemporary moral philosophy, and that's in that paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, takes concepts such as moral obligation, moral, specifically moral rightness, and so on, from a basically a Judeo-Christian context and uses them in a secular way, and they're stripped from the context which gave them meaning. And she thinks that people are using these terms, and they don't mean anything in a secular society, or they don't mean what they... What Can you they, give us an example of a few more of these terms that were not needed? It's moral rightness, for example. Um, so it's the idea of what is it to have a moral duty, a specifically moral duty, as opposed to the way we ordinarily use the word duty. Now, she likes Aristotle because it precedes this Judeo-Christian context, and she looks at Aristotle and says he doesn't talk of specifically moral duty obligation. He talks of what's the good thing to do, what's the virtuous thing to do, why is this a vicious motive? And she thinks if if religious and secular thinkers go back and use that terminology, then we can kind of overcome this question of what is it to talk of moral obligation if you do believe in God or if you if you don't, divine command theory and so on. So you go back to this context where these terms haven't been invented yet and you look at how ethics was done and instead of sort of saying that's no good because it's not Christian, she embraces it and in a way that's how what's called neo-Aristotelian virtue ethics is, is kind of born and this interest in, in the virtues and the good, the bad, the evil rather than these notions of a right action and its relation to consequences. Thank you very much. Rachel, what does she mean when she says that the first person pronoun, I, is not a referring term? What does that mean? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> this is a phrase from a paper that she published in 1975 called The First Person. 
Um, but actually, when you look, she was already thinking about this question um, when she was working with Wittgenstein in the in the 1940s. So this is a question that really becomes, if you like, a thread through her work. She starts the paper by um, thinking about Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And she notices that Descartes concludes or, or draws from this cogito the, the idea that I, in I think, therefore I am, can't refer to my body, can't refer to his body, can't refer to the person Descartes, the man Descartes, because he realises that he can entertain the thought, I think, therefore I am, even while he's doubting that there is any man or that he has a body. So he comes to think that I must be the name for a, a self or a soul or some special part of him. Now, Anscombe thinks that's disastrous. <laughs> she wants to get the whole person back into philosophy. You know, this is a Wittgensteinian uh, a thought and it connects with exactly the kind of virtue ethics that, that Constantine's just been talking about because you want to be able to talk about me, the whole person, Rachel, as being responsible for the actions, not, you know, something that's going on inside me or something like that. So it's a really complicated argument, but basically what she says is, Look, Descartes thought that because he could never m be wrong about who he was referring to when he was referring to him, when he was using I, I must be referring to some special secret part of himself. But actually, she says, look, the real reason that you can't ever be wrong, you can't make a mistake when you use I as to the reference, is that you're not actually picking anything out when you use the word I. It doesn't refer to anything. She says, with I, there is only the use. Now, in a way, this is a bit like what she does in intention. Like She says that you think that if you want to know what intention is, you're going to have to look at find some property of a human being. If you think that if you want to know what I refers to, you're going to have to find some part of you. But actually, let's have a look at how we use the word I. Like, let's describe the use. And this is a really profound move because... It allows her to give an account of self-consciousness, which is a really thorny philosophical topic, without saying, oh, it's consciousness of a self, right? Rather, she says self-consciousness just is that which is manifested when somebody uses the word I. So when I say, you know, I'm sitting, I'm talking, I'm standing, I'm in pain, um, I'm not referring to some myself and predicating some property of myself rather I'm using the word I to express something. This connects with something Wittgenstein says right that when I say I'm in pain it's not like I'm referring to myself and then saying I have this property pain it's more like saying ouch which we don't think has any referring as part of it. And we're coming towards the end of the programme now what has her influence been? The kind of philosophy that Anscombe did, and her attitude to philosophy itself, I think, is is something important. Like Wittgenstein, and she certainly gets this sort of thought from Wittgenstein. Philosophy isn't to be thought of as a, a career or as a discipline uh, in the sense of uh, geography, perhaps, but much closer to an activity. I think she's an excellent role model for any 
philosopher who's in danger of being sucked into academe, which is increasingly professionalised. The last thing that she or, or, or Wittgenstein, or indeed Socrates, would have thought about philosophy was that it's, a, it's suitable as a profession with a career structure and so on. Uh, this connects with her enormous breadth. We've talked about her very important work in ethics and action and a little bit on the first person, but actually there's a whole lot more. Everything connected as far as she was concerned. So she's very unlike the more recent sort of philosopher who says, I work on blah, you know, I work on the philosophy of dental hygiene or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And it's almost a matter of pride in a, a modern academic philosopher to say that because it sounds a bit like science you know I work on mammalian endocrine systems or something like that Um, I think she and Wittgenstein both saw that in doing philosophy you can't home in on one little thing and uh, and do it justice because of the fact that what you're actually doing is is looking at a vast network of interconnected concepts which are our concepts and our uh, Mm -hmm. way of thinking of things so her, her role in philosophy, apart from being a very great philosopher, in my view, she also represents that approach to philosophy, which is that it's terribly serious and not seduced by theory building uh, for the sake of theory building, but to give an honest and detailed account of the, the sorts of conceptual models we get into. And that means hard work, actually, but which she was capable of, notoriously an extremely hard worker and tough person. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I think that's uh, that's a good way to conclude this conversation. Thank you, Roger Teichman, Rachel Wiseman, and Constantine Sandis, and to our studio engineer, Duncan Hannand. Next week, the biggest planet in the solar system, that's Jupiter. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What would you like to have said that you didn't get time to say? Well, I suppose the thing that I've become really interested recently is thinking about Anscombe's work in relation to the other women that you mentioned earlier, Philippa Foote and Iris Murdoch and Mary Midgley. And I think one thing that I think Constantine touched on when you were talking about Aristotle that um, I think is is really important in in Anscombe and in all of those women is this idea that... um, you know, moral philosophy has a subject matter. It's not just about language in the way that that Eyre and Hare thought. It has a subject matter, and its subject matter is what is a good human life? You know, what is it to live well? And this is a, a question that they all get from, from the ancients. Actually, I wanted to say earlier, Constantine, there's a lovely bit where Anscombe says that until she met Wittgenstein, the ancient philosophers, so Plato and Aristotle, were like statues, oh, yeah. and that they came to life her through Wittgenstein so there's a way in which she sort of animates the this Aristotelian idea that we should be looking at what is a good human life through Wittgenstein's idea that we can describe you know these activities and that we can get a certain kind of richness of description out of that that then gives her this this really kind of new version I think of of, of Aristotle's investigation if you like and and I think for all of those women, this question of, you know, what is it to live well, um, where that's a question that we're not asking about robots or aliens or some kind of abstract, you know, computer program, but we're asking what is it for us, you know, the, animal, the kind of animal that we are to live a good life, just as we can ask well, what is it for a cat to live a good life or a squirrel or a tree. We can ask that question about a human as well. And that really that's what 
the content of moral philosophy comes from that investigation as to you know well what is it to live well as a human and i think she's given us wittgenstein because um you know she translated the philosophical investigations as constantine said but her translation is beautiful you know she really had this sense and there's a lovely bbc broadcast of her talking about this just after her translation came out so just after wittgenstein had died well, she talks about it as a literary work and you can see that she treats it as such in her translation. And I think a lot of the power of the philosophical investigations comes from the way she handled that translation. But her work began to influence a lot of people quite early on and one of them was um, the Harvard philosopher Donald Davidson. What did he do with her work? I think Constantine, Constantine probably yeah. knows more about this than I do. Um, yeah, so Davidson on the one hand says something like intention is, you know, one of the greatest works that have been written in recent times. And he has a lot of respect for Anscombe. And one thing he gets from her is this stuff about description, which we can talk more about. Um, but on the other hand, he does set his own work as opposed to some of the things Anscombe was, was doing. So, so we have this kind of respect for her... Um, but at some point he moves towards thinking that there can be... And he changes his his mind. Um, so a few years into him working on these issues, he decides that there can be um, an intention that's a mental state independent of any um, behaviour um, and so on, and that it can cause um, action. So we end up with a view that has a kind of action in the middle and a mental cause on, on, on one side and a physical consequence on, on the other. And that moves away from Anscombe's more sort of impressionistic um, account of, of how the um, how intention is related to, to action. Um, but one thing that happens with Donald Davidson is that philosophy of action really now does become a field in its own right. However... Um, uh, maybe I'm. Maybe others will think I'm pessimistic about this, but it seems to me that after Davidson, philosophy of action is of far greater interest to philosophers of mind than it is to moral philosophers. And in that sense, Anscombe wouldn't be too happy with that that result. That in a way, moral philosophers kept doing what they do. They had their theories of right action, and action is right if and only if. And then you plug in your favorite theory without stopping to ask. But what is an action? What is this thing of which we're... And Anscombe thinks that's disastrous. And Davidson's own view was that actions are events. Um, but if you plug that in, you get weird things, like an event is morally right. If and only, What does it mean for an event to be morally right or, or for us to have a moral obligation for an event to occur? Do you want to take that on? Yeah, well, and another, yes. And, um, uh, one of the things, as Constantine has indicated, which comes out in Davidson is, is that uh, it's a causal theory. He's, he's, he's not alone. He's, there are many predecessors for Davidson in this. this the essential thought is we can explain uh, a voluntary action or an intentional action as my body doing something and the, the cause of it, i.e. the thing that preceded it, which made it happen, is an intention. And uh, in some ways you can think of Anscombe and Wittgenstein as, as uh, as harking right back to Aristotle, because Aristotle draws our attention to the fact that there are two different kinds of explanation you can give. If, for example, if if somebody says, "Why is that heart? Or why is that organ pumping?" Uh, 
you might say, well, because the, the muscles are contracting or their electrical stimulation is going to the thing that make the muscles contract. That's what's called an efficient cause. It's something, an event or process prior to what you're talking about, making it happen. But another obvious answer would be so as to get the blood to go around the body. Uh, and Aristotle calls that a final cause. And uh, essentially, they're not incompatible. They're just two different, uh, no, no, two different senses of the question, uh, why is that doing what it's doing? And uh, I think Anselm's going to say the same is true of action, that uh, we should distinguish, uh, why did you raise your arm? Oh, because neurons, my neurons fired and, and, and my muscles contracted. That's a causal explanation, perfectly true, but probably not what the interlocutor is after. They probably want to know what your reason is. So in broad brush terms, we have the distinction often described as between reasons and causes. And whereas Davidson is definitely the old causal uh, he, he doesn't want to say there's that distinction he wants to reduce the whole uh, field of action and no doubt biology and everything else uh, to a, a causal account efficient causation Anscombe uh, uh, like Aristotle says no there's a plurality of different kinds of explanation you're confusing or you shouldn't conflate causal explanation which is the domain of science etc uh, with reason explanation which is the domain of, of ethics and of rationality and so on it's really unfortunate for Anscombe, um, in a way, because she she writes in such a difficult way, as we've just described, and perhaps because she's a woman, that when Davidson takes her up and says, oh, I'm well, everything I'm saying now is me clarifying Anscombe, she was very unclear, but now I'm going to give you what she really meant in a very clear way. Philosophers sort of stopped reading Anscombe. So for a long time, everybody would call it the Davidson Anscombe position. And it's only very recently that philosophers have actually started rereading Anscombe herself and noticing exactly the things that Constantine and, and Roger were pointing to, which is this is vastly different from what, what Davidson was doing. So she's in this peculiar position that she's sort of seen this beginning philosophy of action, but actually philosophy of action has kind of proceeded down a path that she is, is sort of completely in the opposite direction to where she was trying to take people. Um, going back to what Rachel was saying about um, virtue ethics, I think on, um, it's definitely true that uh, this, uh, this is largely down to, to Anscombe, um, and I think that's, that's a good thing, but there are aspects of it that she wouldn't have liked. For example, virtue ethics has now become one more theory in moral philosophy that, oh, I'm a Kantian, I'm, I'm a consequentialist, I'm a virtue ethicist. Whereas part of Anscombe's point, I think, in modern moral philosophy is that she thinks no one should be doing ethics if they're not discussing the virtues. If it's a, a virtue ethics isn't a theory um, to be kind of, to oppose other theories with. It's something that if you're not interested in how my action relates to my character, you can't, be, you're not really doing ethics. You can't be doing ethics. And that is, be and that's where she comes up with what we now call philosophy of action, but she really called philosophical psychology. And I think she's also give, given rise to that. Um, but again, that's now become a separate branch. Oh, if you're interested in these things, you you're not interested in uh, moral theory. You're mm -hmm. interested in philosophical psychology, and it's become an increasingly empirical branch of moral philosophy. Whereas I think for Anscombe, it, it was what Rachel was describing. It was the observation of how our psychological and moral concepts work and relate to, to each other, not something to be branched away. So she's sort of 
responsible for these huge things, but they don't quite carry on in the way she would have mm. wanted them to, mm -hmm. I think. They're not sufficiently intermingled. Mm -hmm. Before we go, you knew her towards the end of her life, is that right? I, I knew her actually since I was since I was seven, so um, uh, for about 1970 when she began her professorship in Cambridge. So how would you describe her? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> she was a, fast, a, a quite unique individual, um, uh, and one sal salient thing about her was, uh, which one picked up pretty quickly, whatever age one was, was that she was unconventional. Her, her attitudes to convention were uh, um, sometimes quite uh, blasé, um, and this yields a number of very good anecdotes, by the way. For example, she was unusual in her in her time and uh, place to to not wear skirts. She always wore trousers. She she preferred wearing trousers, um, uh, and women wearing trousers uh, in in you know uh, in that setting was extremely unusual. There's a nice anecdote that when she went to America uh, visiting a university, her host took her to a posh restaurant somewhere, uh, and the I don't know when this was, probably the 70s or perhaps the 60s. The 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 person, the doorman, I suppose, of this restaurant said, I'm afraid ladies uh, may not uh, be admitted wearing trousers. And she was wearing slacks of some sort. So, And her host was mortified and said, I'm so sorry, Elizabeth, we have to go somewhere else. And she said, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, she walked some, to some little cubbyhole or, or a corner somewhere, removed her trousers. Uh, and reappeared uh, at the door of the hotel with her host. She was wearing some sort of slip or something or other, but uh, she said, they'd, you're not allowed to wear trousers, then here I am. Did she uh, get in? She, they got in, yes. And the doorman didn't have the face, didn't have the guts to say, no, that doesn't do either. So, so that's one of many nice anecdotes about her having really no, uh, no, no care for the sillier conventions and trammels of, of ordinary. Um, well, we've just been... We've just been... Uh, I was about to say interrupted, but um, creatively disturbed by the producer. You'd <laughs> ah. <laughs> like a cup of tea. Ah. Yeah. yeah sure. Along with COVID-19 came the rise of the conspiracy theory movement in the UK. The system's rotten at the core. It should be deleted. I'm Mariana Spring. In my new series, I'll be exposing how radical some people in the movement have become and how alternative media is fueling them. So many crazy stories have been spread so far and wide that it's hard to see this ending well. Mariana in Conspiracyland on BBC Radio 4. Available now on BBC Sounds. Hello and welcome back to the Business Blueprint from the UK's Department for Business and Trade. Let's hear more now about Ad Tonos from Michael Martinik. UK is a fertile place to start a business. It's actually the best option to do that. It gives you a great potential of scaling up the business to either Asia or the US. You start in the centre of everything. Has there been any particular help from the government in the UK, something that's helped to boost your business? We were one of 100 lucky startups that got into GEP. The Global Entrepreneur Programme. Yes, that's correct. And we got some support in terms of scaling up to other countries. Thank you, Michael. To scale and strengthen your business, just as Adtonos has done, investing in the UK could be the right next step for you. To inquire and to find out more, search Invest in Great. Music 